1: We are, we're ready. We're ready. Oh, so I. <laughs> I told you, he's gonna be like, let's go! Let's go.
2: <laughs> so let's let's get started. I love you. I'm not so sure of that.
1: No, you're one of my favorite people. What or is sister? your
2: f- name anyway? <laughs> oh really, what is it? Why Jinja. can't you be Jan or something? Or because, Jane, Jin-
1: because Jinja is actually Japanese, but it's also African. It's a city in Uganda.
2: Yeah, don't be trying to throw Japanese. You African, it is- your ass is African.
0: <laughs> I'm Ginger Birkenbühl, and I'm Esther Ikoro and we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is
1: full of anticipation, failure, hope and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hey, Esther.
0: Hey, Ginger. How's it going?
1: It's going awesome.
0: Who do we have here today?
1: (laughs) We have someone absolutely stupendous and amazing. A man that I met a few years ago, and he is someone that I considered one of the original entrepreneurs, Um, led the way for a lot of people on running a business. There's a lot we could talk about. You know, we could talk about this person's 21 seasons in Major League Baseball for Kansas City, Oakland Athletics, the Orioles, New York Yankees. We can talk about this person's induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1993. We could talk about his 14-time All-Star, five-time World Series champion. We can talk about his movie career. You know, he was in Naked Gun TV shows like The Jeffersons, but we're not gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about his entrepreneur's journey and how he hits home runs in business. That's what we're gonna focus on because in entrepreneurship, we're grinding and sweating it out here in this new world of business. And we really need to learn from original entrepreneurs. When I've been reading about you over the last couple years um, since we've known each other, I've always been intrigued by your ability to be an entrepreneur and also be a ball player. Was there a point when you were playing ball that you knew you were an entrepreneur? Have you always been an entrepreneur? Did you grow up around entrepreneurship or did you, after you started, you know, moving out of baseball professionally, you said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I mean, how did this process become?
2: I never used the word entrepreneur.
1: Okay.
2: Uh, until I learned a definition of it, maybe at the age of 40. I think what I, I found is that my father was a self-doer. My older brother, Joe, who's still alive, he's 81 or 80 or something like that. He's got as much energy or more energy than I do. And he's a self-starter as a person. I was raised with him in the same house with him. I have an older sister that's 84. Uh, She's better with the phone than I am. Uh, She texts me more than I do. Text her. So it's in our genes, if you will. Um, My oldest brother is just an absolute self-starter, he's a guy that makes it happen. And if he had only $100 a week, his pants would be pressed, his clothes would be clean, his house would be neat, he'd have food in the fridge, his car would run, and he would be happy and successful. Um, It wouldn't depend on what the world needed to do for him. If you will, he, he's a self starter and be a person that would make it work and enjoy and be successful. And so, you know, from that, my father was a guy that made ends meet. And so it's what I saw when I was growing up.
1: So you saw self starters and hard workers, but, you know, back then, people worked for other people for the, for the most part. Mm-hmm. i mean i consider you an innovator in that space because you were creating your own spaces and doing your own things and now of course you have your own companies so when did you realize that you could be on, go yeah. beyond working for the club and you're going to have your own ideas and own con- your own concepts about things because you have a candy bar named after you you know you decided to market yourself your company now reggie's garage you have um, reggiejackson.com where you're actually selling memorabilia right? So you also have a nonprofit organization called Mr. October Foundation. So you have your own businesses. So where where does that happen? Because a lot of people can't do that. They can't um, be self-sufficient like I, that.
2: I, I got you. Um, you know, certainly during my baseball career, I did understand that I had a brand that had reach. And I did want to take advantage of the opportunities that were before me to be able to get acquainted with people that were doers. And so I did make a decision to stay connected with the Yankees. Um, I thought that that brand had significant value. It added to whatever I had. I knew that the family was loyal and solid. And I was a person that, you know, kind of marched to his own drummer at time and kind of stretched the lines, if you will, stretch the boundaries. Um, I could get out of bounds from time to time and get myself in trouble with a comment or something that I would say, which I've done pretty much my whole life. And so I did make a decision to, to develop a relationship with them. So I do work for them. My boundaries aren't tight except for morals and values there. Um, integrity there but I get to go and come as I please do what I want and to be able to create my value for the team as I see fit because I'm trusted
1: my company certified Burt Creative as a minority-owned business and I was gonna actually ask you why are you certified and have you found a lot of extreme value around being certified because it's not easy to be a certified black-owned business it takes some time and I don't even necessarily know if I've seen the full benefits of having that certification I wonder sometimes if having that certification actually takes business away from you or, you know, adds to business. Um.
2: It doesn't take business away. Uh, But what I will say is you do need to continue to remind the people that you're associated with, people that you've connected with, because you're a minority business, that it adds value to them. It fills a profile for them. They don't make any more money because of you. But it does help them fill a spot for the presentation of the corporate associate that they're working with. Uh, If someone is a supplier for AT&T and the question is asked to the supplier, gosh, do you know any minority vendors in your space that we could buy from? And that question gets asked. And Mm -hmm. I'm able to, I know those kind of things because most of my connects... Uh, connections, I call it connects, Mm -hmm. me talking about different individuals, um, are at a senior high level or either equity owners, full owners, chairman, president. And so I'm able to have that conversation with them because I'm either older than most of them or at least the same age or they're my era because the wealth is in people from 50 to 80
1: Right, right.
2: And so my conversation is a little plainer, a little more direct uh, with people. And so I'm able to ask those questions, and they're difficult. Um, There's a gentleman, a very close friend of mine, like a brother, known him for 30-some years. His name is Rick Hendrick. He owns the Hendrick Racing Team. But if you go anywhere in the country, he owns 160 automobile dealerships. It's 12, 13, 14 billion a year in revenue. And so I'm involved in the automobile business as a dealer because I'm a minority. And there's some deals that you cannot get unless you are a minority. Now how do you qualify for that? So someone needs to have money and someone needs to have the expertise. So I've partnered with him for his expertise and I bring a little bit of money. And any of the money I need is easy access for me because I bring both things. Now, you know, in talking about what do I do for another company, well, they don't really need me, Ginger and, and Esther, at the same time, I need to be reminding them as to what's going on or what I bring to the table because they don't really need me at the same time. In the arena of the automobile industry, um, where you are trying to add more dealerships, the manufacturers now are looking for minorities. In order to be a minority dealer, you need to own 51%. So you need to walk into the room with two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight million. That's hard to find in the minority world unless you're an athlete, doctor, business person, or something like that. And we're not plentiful as a minority. So you need to remind people that you're with that this is a good idea. And at the same time, I know that the Rick Hendricks of the world and his Hendrick Automotive Group, the Jim Cranes of the world, who owns the Houston Astros, that has a business of logistics that does a billion or two billion a year, and this, another gentleman, a friend of mine, by the name of Randy Buller, that owns a company called the Parts Authority, they do several billion dollars a year, and they're interested in moving forward the opportunities for minorities. It's one of the things that they want to check for them as a person, for them as to express their character to people and to express their integrity and care of, hey, this is what I'm doing for the minority world. They always have told me, and I'll tell the two of you, the best thing you can be is to be minority and a woman. It's a two-way product. So the advantages in minority businesses and opportunities are being a woman and being minority.
1: So how have you been able to compartmentalized, you know, Reggie Jackson, baseball Hall of Famer from Reggie Jackson, the businessman when you're in spaces like this. I mean, how have you been able to manage, you know, your ego and even someone else's fan obsession with you when you're working in these spaces? Because I feel like it would be easy for you to just sort of say, walk in and say, I'm Reggie Jackson Hall of Famer. And they would say, oh my God, it's Reggie Jackson Hall of Famer. Let's just make this happen. But you still have to be able to do business and, and Like you said earlier, have integrity and be extremely professional, and just, you know, almost kind of take away the fact that you're a Hall of Famer because you're really there to do business.
2: I think that the best thing that someone can do is when they're involved in a meeting that, you know, has to do with business or building a hotel, which is something that I'm trying to do, or whether you're trying to do something with an automobile business or trying to do something to be able to build a group of companies that are supporting my foundation. We were in Southern California about three weeks ago, and there were about 30 companies there that were representing or involved with helping my foundation, whether they be FedEx or General Motors or Ralph Lauren or Nike or Titleist. Or for me, when I'm talking to them, I want to know what they need and what they want. Charity is a nice thing, but charity is a two way street, and there needs to be a currency return, some kind of a value back um, for the people that you're engaged with. Um, we were thrilled to where Bank of America had come out from Charlotte, North Carolina, to attend our event to finalize an opportunity to participate with what. We do. And so you're
1: talking about you're talking about Mr. October Foundation, right? Yes, now, the Mr.
2: Okay. October Foundation, mm-hmm. yes. And that happened from my relationship with Rick Hendrick, who he used to be on the board of Bank of America. So I got the right meeting in front of the right people, and Rick said to me before the meeting started, he said, now, um, I don't want you to say too much. He said, they're interested in doing something with you and I, uh, with your foundation in the state of North Carolina. And our dealership that you and I have, Reggie, is going to be in the tech heartbeat of the East in Raleigh, North Carolina. He said, so they want to do something. Just let them talk. And the more they talk, the further they'll go. And so I took from him that bit of information and basically didn't gush out with all of the stuff I was thinking about I heard what they had to say. They're going to write the check, and they eventually are going to tell me how they're going to write it, what they want, if I just sit there and not screw it up, you don't get in the way of it. In our situation with uh, a hotel that we're going to build in Monterey, California, the city's dying to do it, and so in my first meeting with them was about 10 years ago, in 2008, and. Um, It didn't really work that well. There were different people there. You know, now it's 2019, and they were asking a gentleman there that I knew that owned a piece of the land that owns the church. He said, Reggie, they've been asking me for a year how to get in front of you. And so when I heard that, I went in and I just listened. And they told me that you don't have to worry about CEQA. We're exempt. You don't have to worry about the Coastal Commission were exempt. We'd like to see bulldozers there tomorrow.
1: Wow. And so, so
2: I just shut up and let them talk. So there's times when you can say things and times when you shouldn't, and just be concerned and make it a short, just wrap up my story. I want to listen to the other person and find out what's in it for them. Um, and basically, this city and Seaside has done very well without me the last 10 years in the hotel that I have a chance to build. And uh, Google and Apple and all the other people, the Yankees won world championships when I was there, before I got there, when I left, and they're going to win some more. So if I listen to what they want, what how they want to go about it, I can add what I want. I've been invited to the meeting, so they want something to do with me. So I need to figure out how that fits for them. That's more important than how I think it fits for me. When I went to the Yankees as a more of a celebrity and more of a a big shot in using the terms, to use the term to let you recognize the difficulty of fitting in. Hey, he's a big shot, Magic Johnson here. What do we do? How do we fit him in? Well, my thought was, how do I fit in? There's 600 people here. All the 600 don't need to learn how to fit with me. I need to learn how to fit in with the group. Hmm. And when that happens, then the effort is seen and the ease of, of fitting or participation is a lot easier, a lot simpler.
0: Why did you choose cars as far as Reggie's garage to, to make part of your extension of your brand and your business?
2: It's what I cared about. it's what I liked. It's what I enjoyed. Um, you know one of the thing, one thing I enjoyed, I never had a lot of money. and so I always saved money. and it really bothered me when my going to the bank to deposit 10% of every check I own got, to put in the bank. I wrote it down in the bank, but I handed my bank book to the lady that was a teller, and she wrote down the amount (laughs) and then initialed it and handed it back to me. And when that got lost and I had to use the phone and the technology, I lost that excitement that was created with me going to the bank every day and taking that $10 and setting it aside. To this day... I was telling my banker the other day, the financial guy, I got my assistant retired after 45 years, and I told him, I said, I'm getting a check in for 6900 and it's going to you, make sure you take out the 690 please. You do whatever you want with it, but take the 690 out, put it over on the side here in my savings account. I mean, so, so there's some something to what I learned as a kid, and what I learned as a child, and what had value to me. You know, Esther, I'll, I'll say that the car thing for me was something that I learned as a child with my dad and being around cars as a kid. It was a big deal for my era as a child to be 16 and I, I got my ride, I got my wheels, I got my hoopty we called them hoopty. You know, it was a big deal when you could buy a Cadillac in, in the 50s, in the 60s. Uh, our first car was a Hudson, and then we bought a Buick. We got a Century, and then the big Buick was a Roadmaster. And then in 56, my dad bought a Cadillac, and that was like, oh, gosh. You, you made it in America when you could drive a Cadillac.
1: You know, you have a passion for cars which is amazing. How do you keep your passion though and still run the business when you're dealing with the nitty gritty? I mean it's incredible. Um, I, I feel like you can just you get exhausted by the business side and sometimes that might kill your passion, but you're still fired up about cars and running your businesses.
2: Oh, well, the one thing I'll say is I've been very fortunate to have been a consistent earner mm. and so Part of, of, of me has, has allowed me to fall in love with things, and when you fall in love with things, you kind of lose your sense of what's valuable or what's not valuable, but it could be the story attached to the thing that makes it valuable to me. And and to hold on to it. Because when I see it, it's the memory. You know, your first girlfriend and and, and you're in the drive-in movie and you're in the front seat and you spill the popcorn on the floor and then six months later you're cleaning the seat out and you pick out a piece of the popcorn and the memory is, hey, it's the first time Sandy and I were together. And so you keep the car for that. There's a lot of that during our the history of our country, where people kept cars and they had old cars on it, suddenly had a lot of no, they had low miles on them, because somebody went to war. It was the son's car, and finally during the Vietnam War in 60s, uh, some of those cars were sold because the parents held on to them and you know because it was part of, of life.
0: What car does that for you? Like which one is your favorite?
2: I would say if I had to say. You know, my favorite, I've got a couple. I'd probably name two or three, but I I have a story with a Rolls Royce that I bought in 1976 when I signed with the Yankees. And um, I went into the San Francisco store. It was owned by the Cavalli family and um, they sold Mercedes and Rolls. And I went in to buy a Rolls and um, I couldn't get waited on. 1976 November, and a black salesman came over to me, and said, you Reggie Jackson? I said, yes. And he said, well, um, can, can I help you? And I said, well, I want to buy a car. He said, we're we looking for? I said, I want to buy a Rolls. And he said, um, <clears throat> uh, well, when would you like to buy it? I said, well, I, my sister dropped me off. I need to buy something to drive home. And so we had that conversation, and, and sooner or later, I, I couldn't get waited on for a while. But I ran into him, and and I bought a car there. So, you know, I remember that car. I drove it across country. It came back before I did, around August or so. And then in 1977, I had a great World Series. We won the World Series as Yankees. And I went into a store, a car store that sold exotics, and I bought three or four cars from the guy during that year. I bought a Ferrari from him. I bought a... Rolls Royce Coupe and I bought a car that day the next day after I hit the three home runs that was silver over blue with a blue navy top and it was Yankee colors and I bought it that night the day after the World Series stuck a Samsonite suitcase in the back with a couple pair underwear and a couple t-shirts and jacket and a pair of jeans and drove it home I drove it to California Wow. 2,800 miles, and that's two cars, and I still own both of them.
0: That's great. I, I still that. got them,
2: because when I look at them, it's not so much the value in the car, it's the, the, the passion that I have for them, or the, it's the story, it's the memory.
1: Ask you um, a little bit about Mr. October Foundation. Where did your passion for philanthropy come from and why did you launch Mr. October Foundation and what exactly is Mr. October Foundation?
2: Um, The Mr. October Foundation um, has created a a STEM curriculum for uh, kids between 6th and uh, 12th grade and it introduces underserved children um, in a technological way, if you will, of understanding technology so that you're not afraid of it. I'd wondered for uh, around W-A-N-D-E-R with how to help kids and I wrote checks for different communities, et cetera, to help with education, if you will, um, whether it was buying commuter- computers or helping with a different particular program or sh- sports equipment or, wh- or whatever, but I had a serious conversation with a friend And she had talked to me about technology, she was involved in technology. So I got focused on it when I started reading some of the percentages of uh, minorities and their lack of graduating from high school, lack of attending college, and the fact that as minorities, whether you're uh, Native American, Latin American, Uh, or African American, you're at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to graduating from high school. You're around the 50 percentile, um, while Amerasian and and white America is in the the 88, 89 uh, percentile of graduating from high school. So I took a look at that and thought it made sense. Uh, I had an understanding since I lived in 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 and around the Silicon Valley, Valley area that the job opportunities are growing leaps and bounds. While there's three, four million jobs that are going to be opportunities available for college graduates in Silicon Valley, there will not be 33% 33% of this country's population, is which is minority, between African American and Latin American, there won't be a million people available to take advantage of the 30% of minority opportunities that would be there for the 3.5 million jobs that are going to be there available in 2023. So this was back when I was thinking about this in 2010 and 11 and 12, it was 2015, 16, 17. Now we're 18, 19, 20, and the opportunities for those jobs are not being fulfilled. They're open, and so there's yeah. you know all of the visas and all of the people that come in and take up those jobs, and minorities are still behind, because we have run from technology and run from, we got, we've gotten afraid of studying technology. Once you get past seventh, eighth, ninth grade, the kids are afraid of it. So if you can start playing with the stuff like you see kids now, playing with a phone when they're four and five, there's no fear of the PADs or the the different technology instruments that we use in daily life. And so I wanted to get involved in that because I know that the world is going that way, it helps our economy, it helps our people, education is a way of improving our social interactions. And so I'm one believer that if we all get a little bit smarter, we all get a little better educated, then we wouldn't have um, white supremacy, we wouldn't have racism, we wouldn't have a lot of those things that interrupt and cloud and get in the way of our interaction as just people.
1: Is the foundation only located in California? No. Or is it nationwide? Oh, no,
2: no. We're nationwide. We have students that we help in... Uh, Memphis we have students that we help in Tampa we have students that we help in the Bronx in New York we have students that we help in uh, Oakland Um, we're working on a program now that will be outside Detroit and so we have a focus on areas like that Um, after Detroit we'll probably I'd like to go either to Phoenix or because I went to college in Phoenix I'd like to go to Phoenix or I'd like to go to Chicago because it's rough
1: and tough here
2: it's rough and tough here as well definitely
1: chicago definitely chicago i will help you do that for sure sure. so um the foundation itself are you providing trainings around this um what exactly does the foundation do when you say you help what does the help look like
2: we introduce underserved children in uh, certain schools and certain in in the areas around um, difficult communities social communities that are under duress and stress uh, underserved communities, communities we call them, we introduce them to programs in technology from grade six through 12, and the curriculum starts down in the sixth grade.
1: I want to
0: really know who your mentors have been. I want to know if there are some pivotal people in your life that you've really learned some of those principles and practices from throughout the years. I would say
2: off and on. My father would say, off your ass and on your feet in the morning, get up and go, get something done. Um, My brother would always, uh, my oldest brother would always say to me, no excuses, no boo, which is a short term for no BS. So I learned that from him and I learned just to kind of get things done with the people I was around at a young age, playing with Charlie Finley, who people thought was difficult and Henry, as the owner of the Oakland A's, the Kansas City A's, and then the Oakland A's. He demanded excellence, uh, demanded excellence with bare bones, didn't want to pay, he was tight. Etc. but he wanted excellence out of you. Uh, George Steinbrenner, who paid people well, but George assembled the best team, and he could never figure out why we lost the game. And we played 162, but he figured you're the best team. How do you lose a game when you have the best team? You know, I did learn from that. I did learn the demand for excellence and you know, how to maintain integrity with yourself by looking in the mirror.
1: And speaking of that, a couple months ago, we were just sort of talking about how do you mentor other people, whether they're in business or they're they're athletes? So what are some of the ideas that you share to help younger (laughs) people that are coming up with a business you know, that are in athletics, what are some of the things that you can share? Because I feel like a lot of the lessons from you don't seem to be applying to people that are just starting businesses now. They don't really have some of the experience you've had in baseball. They don't have some of the visuals that you grew up looking at. To see lots of integrity or clarity or professionalism or things like that.
2: Okay. When you say that,
1: mm-hmm.
2: when, when you say to me, how do I help people or what have I done, et cetera, I have a picture of people that come to my mind. Okay. So when you say you know entrepreneurs that are doing things and they're not doing it, do you have pictures of people that come to your mind?
1: Sometimes. Okay. Yep.
2: I do all the time. Mm-hmm. I have a picture. There's a young man that plays for us by the name of Aaron Hicks. He's our center fielder, a highly talented guy. And he's been hurt. He signed a big deal for 70 or 80 million bucks just a year or so ago. And I've been on the phone with him the last couple of days, and he's been talking to me about buying a car. And so I've been giving him some pointers uh, and things to be aware of and think about. And the thing that I said to him mostly is, if you're gonna spend X amount, you need to get on the airplane and go feel it and touch it. Don't just buy it, send me some pictures, let me look. But you're obligating yourself to get up out of your chair in your comfortable home that you're in and get on a flight and go look and touch your investment. And so these are the things that I would say to him that I have said to him just today in the last couple of days. Uh, I talked to Aaron Judge, I want to say two years ago, two winters ago, and he picked up the phone and said, Hey, Reg, I'm thinking about buying a condo. I've already got one, but it's a little small. I get something a little bigger. And he wasn't making very much money a couple of years ago, probably total maybe seven or eight hundred thousand bucks with what he was making as a minimum as a player, and then some off the field money, shoe deal or appearances or whatever. And I said to him, I, he said, well, I'm thinking about selling one. I said, keep the one. He says, is it paid for it? He said, almost. I said, keep it, rent it out, and then go buy the other one. And he said, oh, oh, oh okay. I said, that'll be your first piece of property. And he said, oh, yeah. that's He was about 24, 25 then. And I've said to guys that are playing baseball, I said, save yourself a million bucks.
0: Hmm.
2: When you save a million, then get two. You save two million, then get five. But once you get five, you can do this. Kick back, cross your leg, look around the world and say, I don't feel like doing that. But... While you have the opportunity, don't squander it away, cause it, it's going to be gone.
0: And you talked about that when you were a kid, and just throughout life, saving that ten percent.
2: Yeah, well, for me, Esther, I wanted to from? get to fifty thousand. Yeah. Then I wanted to get to seventy-five. Then I wanted to get to a hundred. Then I started making a hundred a year. Then I started making two hundred, and so. My pile got bigger and my wings spread a little bit more, you know. And I'm not without having fear of it not being there one day. I live with that fear that what happens if it goes away or is gone or something happens, you know, and that little bit of fear or realization of reality check is what keeps you going or keeps you from being silly or stupid or staying between the lines, et cetera.
1: Knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently with your businesses? Would you have done anything differently with Mr. October Foundation? Would you have done anything differently with Reggie's Garage? Would you have started a different type of a business? Because you have a long way you can look back and say, I wish I had done this.
2: There's a couple of things I, have done diff- I would have done differently differently with the technology um, that I used for Reggie's garage, but I was learning and didn't quite know, uh, and so it was a learning experience. But now that I look back, I can see where I made some mistakes because I engaged with the wrong people. Um, and I had a gentleman that's running this company now called the Parts Authority, said, Reggie, you've got a parts business, but it's a technology business. It's it's not just a parts business. Mm. You're getting into the technology world and and how to be able to keep up and manage the technology and keep pace with the cloud and things like that. And so once I found that out, I piggybacked with him. You know, so I wouldn't have, have done it myself. I would have partnered with someone a bit sooner. You know, and certainly I'd say, Ginger, that uh, there's always things that you would change once you get down the road. As far as I've gotten, to shortcut it and make it, make things uh, different and better. You know, hindsight, I should have sold cars maybe seven, eight years ago. But not only I had a passion for cars and I fell in love with them, and I, I, I'm not as concerned about the money I could have had at the peak of the, the ability to sell. Uh, rather than now where they're not quite as as, expen- as as valuable at the same time I'm either my cars are either worth 20 million or 14 they're either worth 27 or 12 like so so what mm-hmm. is my view of it all right. give me the 12 and I'll be happy it could have had nothing
0: That's an interesting balance because you you just (laughs) talked about the fact that you sometimes are like afraid that that feeling might not be there. My parents are immigrants, so I always kind of have that in the back of my mind as well. Like, what happens if? But then at the same time, you talked about talking to the athlete and saying, well, when you get to five, you can kind of cross your legs and and do what you want. Right. What was, when did you cross that threshold? Because it feels like you're in this very free space of you still have this ambition and there are things you want to build and create, but at the same time, you're kind of like, if you don't want to, what's the difference between 12 and 20? The
2: deciding factor is uh, I made a decision today to carry things lightly today. I had some things I needed to do, and I should not be doing anything else with my spare time. And so I left my prayer book at home,
1: on purpose
2: yes yeah i had it i I always carry it with me i have two i have one in northern california one in southern california the same book i probably have 10 or 12 prayer books um but i left mine home today because if i took it on the plane i was going to read it and i need to make a list of 49 cars that i want to sell And the time that I have on the plane, or the time that I had when I went upstairs for about an hour and a half before I came here, I need to make the list. So I made the time for that. Now, the most important thing that you have is your guidance from God. And and once you get that comfort level that you're doing the right thing, and your worries aren't aren't so much there. The biggest problem I might have economically now is how to give it away, because you ain't going with you. And all of the stuff you have doesn't mean anything to getting through the gates. So you, once you and, and the nice thing about getting to be in your 70s, like me, it's like all the stuff, it's like, enjoy it, because you ain't going to have it forever. <laughs> So figure out who to give it to and, and what you want to do with it. You know, I, I'm comfortable. I'm going to eat good the rest of my life. I'm going to drive a nice car. If I only got one, I got a nice bed to sleep in. I can turn the heat up if I want. If I get up in the middle of the night and I can't sleep, I can go down. I got Oreos, Chips Ahoy, Fig Newtons, <laughs> Apple, applesauce, apple pie.
1: From your baseball career to your entrepreneur and business journey, it doesn't feel like it's been hard work for you. I'm not saying you didn't work hard. I'm saying you yeah. it seemed like you loved every minute. And I, I think that one of the challenges that we all have in today's environment when we're when we're launching and starting businesses and trying to grow them, I'm gonna tell you, I mean, you can love it, which is why I asked you earlier. You know, when you love your thing and you're still running the business, how do you keep the love alive? Because this is a grind. But I feel like you found a way to not feel a grind. And I'm trying to get that secret sauce out of you. Where did I, I, you how come I guess, you don't feel like you're grinding? You
2: know, I would honestly say that, um, you know, I've had times at night when I've woken up, you know, late awake and mm-hmm. kind of worried about, you know, this bill or that bill or is this going to work? Is Miami going to make make that deal work, et cetera? Invariably, if you're doing the right things with your heart and, and you're listening to God, you're making your decisions with God, then it works out. It, I, and I've experienced being in need and having something come into my life that fulfills that need, whether it's a check or whether it's you know something, some person that comes in and makes me smile And I think, too, I'm absolutely 100 percent—I don't like the terms 110 percent or 1,000 percent— I'm 100 percent grateful. I'm 100 percent thankful for what God has done for me. I'm healthy beyond my age. Um, I'm 73. I only look 70. (laughs) No. <laughs> I don't even think you look 70, and your arms, but, like your guns are, are huge and but hard. all those things, I had a terrible um, uh, accident about 18 months ago. I ruptured a, a patella tendon, and I was 71 when I ruptured a patella tendon. And for anyone my age, I would have wound up with a, lip, a limp and cripple but because of the, the strength that God had given me and where it happened and where I was and the, the ability to be able to go through therapy and have the stick and deal with the pain and, and issues of going through it, I got through it and, and got better and the opportunities that continue to present themselves to me, I'm grateful and thankful. So. I'm not without problems, and I'm not without downtimes, et cetera, you know, but I, as far as having a lack of fulfillment, I'm too thankful. It, it's been too good. I've had somebody tell me, more than one person, I'm really impressed with the people that are your friends, and that's the highest compliment that you can get. It's the highest compliment that you can get. God puts those people in your life. Uh, And when they're good people, it's a complete reflection on you, and it's it's the wind beneath your wings. It's the strength and it's the fuel for life. It's what it's really all about, and that's all because of God to me. And so it all goes back to that, is to how you relax or how you're comfortable, the decisions you make, what's important, what's not, how to go about it, how to respond to it. I have some things that go on, like my situation, my relationship with the Yankees. I'd like it to be different, but that's what I want. It may not be you know, what it, it, it is, um, and let me try to say this right, Um, my relationship with the family, my relationship with the people that run the team is outstanding and incredible. Um, Certainly I would like to do more. I've always wanted to own a team or be involved in a team. That's not that way anymore, okay, because of my age, but that went by me. So I've always kind of yearned for that, if you will.
1: Why did that go by you? Is that a long story? I mean, it's it uh, it's sounds a long, interesting it's a long you say story. That. I had
2: the money to buy two teams, but I was denied by the commissioner. Oh, okay. So um, I was either a, had a bad record or, or, or had been arrested too many times, or uh, the party didn't give me the invitation. I didn't have the makings to be invited to, in, to be into the corral there was something wrong with the way I looked. I I like it. it when people of color will walk up to me and it happens a lot and they just say thank you for being you. Thank you for who you are. you know as, and, and a personal say as, as a black man or as a black woman, I want to thank you. I'm proud of you. that you can't say anything better to me. Um, and that's the stuff that I would say about Muhammad Ali and Jackie Robinson and like that. And when you can be close or similar or something to them then that that's we can't ask for more than that. That, that happens because of God. That's God's deal.
1: You know, you, when, you, when you say that people come up to you and say thank you and they're black people, what types of barriers or what opportunities or maybe even abundance did you experience or have you experienced or continue to experience with your businesses as a man of color?
2: Too many still happens. Incredibly painful when you were, when I was younger. Um, still painful today, but I understand it. Significant frustration and sorrow, um, disappointment. Um, you know, I just don't see me in the places that I am able to go. It's painful. It's painful at my age. It hurts. I still see the mores that present themselves as separatism and segregation and racism. But the the racism is, it's a moray that needs to be changed and they haven't and there's not an effort for it. And so my thought of how to change the mores is through education. If you have people understanding better, they're able to sit down and have a conversation and say, gosh, you know, um, I talked to Reggie Jackson for an hour on a flight and, gosh, some of the things he said, I, I never really thought about them. Um, and some of the things were so had so much to do with be it racism or be it the way the world is today. And, gosh, I didn't agree with him. But after listening, he made sense. That's education. And so that's my view of what education is. And so for me to think about the things that happened to me in baseball and with the commissioner's office and being kept out, um, not being given opportunities to run a baseball team, be a president of a baseball team, be a general manager of a baseball team, even get interviewed. Um, I had a team one time to say to me, gosh, Reggie, we don't think we want to interview you. And I said, well, could I just come for the experience? They said, no, we, we, we don't think so. And I saw that guy. That was a, when I was about 62 or three, And I saw him about two years ago. Again, he's still in the same spot with the same team and running the team. And I asked him why he said that to me. And he said, I would tell you that I'm sorry. And he didn't say anything else.
1: Well, how'd that make you feel? I mean, that's pretty intense. Broke my heart, really. Wow. Yeah.
2: Broke my heart. I mean, that's. I couldn't, I said, I just want to, I know I won't be hired, but just could I go through the interview? And I was denied. So those are the things that are painful uh, for me and the things that I still still experience. And you did, know, you,
1: did you think things would be different by now? I mean, when you think about.
2: Things are different.
1: I mean, a lot different. Do you think they're a lot different? Yeah.
2: When I was young I saw uh, they'd hang people
1: okay and, well. and
2: they didn't get get didn't have a problem with it. They'd drag you down the street until your head came off and they never caught the guys that did it. When I went to Birmingham, Alabama in 1967 to play baseball, 1964 in Birmingham they had murdered the four girls. They didn't catch him until 2014 or something and they didn't catch him all then either. And one guy either got away or they didn't bother or, like, really? Really? Everything happens to do, has to deal with. You said to me, what do you do when you go into a room and you're in a big business situation and you've got the chairman of Microsoft sitting there? You, you want to do a deal with him? you got to get in his shoes. You can't really. He's running a company that's worth a trillion and change.
1: How do you get in his shoes?
2: Do the best you can. Because if you don't try to understand where he's coming from, you're going to miss. So maybe you should listen more. Consider this when you go to a meeting and you're sitting at the table and there's 10 people there. Do your best to be the last one to speak because you'll get all the right information before you talk.
1: Reggie, what do you have in store for 2020? What's going on going Nothing. forward?
2: Nothing. Uh, my daughter's going to have a baby. Uh, so wow. I'll be a pop-pop. Congratulations. I'll be pop-pop Congrats. in March. And um, my older brother is doing good, and my sister's doing great. And
1: Mr. October Foundation, what's Thanks happening there good. in the future?
2: Um, we're working on something now outside of Detroit. Um, That would be our next project, and then doing a little bit more Memphis, and um, we'll do an additional expansion. We're going to do more in Oakland. We're doing more in the Bronx, and then we'll, fingers crossed, uh, we'll have some connectivity in the North Carolina area and start out in Raleigh uh, with Bank of America.
1: And what about reggiesgarage.com? What's happening in 2020 for Reggie's Garage?
2: Um, We'll add to uh, the dollars um, and add to, um, you know, our sales through a couple of companies that we're, you know, hoping to get some additional business from.
1: And then reggiejackson.com. I love that website. What can I get on there? Can I order something today? Yeah. What can I get?
2: You can get a a T-shirt that says um, New York's Own Mr. October, and it looks like emoji. It has emoji. I want one. Yeah, I, 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 I don't think so.
1: I want one. Do you no, have it
2: on? No, it, it's black. It's up. We we I I think I brought like two dozen to sell wow. across the street.
1: You have them here. Yeah, Esther and I would like to buy one. Do you have some extras? Do I
2: get anything for like being on the show? Can, like a absolutely, f- you get my gratitude and my 31 grace. Flavors, gratitude. Thirty-one
0: flavors, double dip. You're forever <laughs> embedded in my memory. Then when I start yeah. my foundation, I'll be like Reggie Jackson. I want me a some.
2: double scoop of chocolate mint chip. <laughs> absolutely, coffee. At yeah. Yeah. yeah, Joe's I got it, right.
0: Yeah, he's got he's got it covered. Wow, thank you so much for. Taking the time to talk to us i really appreciate your time and i really appreciate your sincerity and your your honesty and and just talking through all of the different parts because this is the honest field guide and we like people who just are straight talkers and you're definitely one of them so i really appreciate it i'm esther (laughs) i'm ginger (laughs) i'm reggie (laughs) that's perfect and we're the honest field guide we'll talk to you next time The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikoro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago. The opinions
1: expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikoro. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter.